verse 18, Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Well, Jesus has recently silenced the Pharisees and the Herodians who came to query him about taxes. and They marveled at his answer, and so they've been silenced, so the Sadducees are going to take their shot. Now, the Sadducees, as we see here, did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They were the materialists and the rationalists of their day. They did not believe in the resurrection or in angels or in miracles, etc. And you've probably heard the phrase, this is why they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe in these things. And that, you know, it's, it's a funny little thing, but it helps us, you know, remember who these guys are when you come across that word. Well, the Sadducees were the ruling faction in Jerusalem, and they, made up, they were made up mostly by the priests and the lineage of the high priests. Most of the Sadducees were priests. Uh, they were the aristocratic class, so admittance was somewhat limited. They were wealthy through the merchandising of the temple, which business Jesus had disrupted the day before. And so now they come to challenge him. Once again, as with the Pharisees and Herodians, these factions were not at all friendly with one another. But they all agreed to fight what they all considered the greater problem. Jesus and his extreme popularity among the people. His disdain for each of these groups was shown by his words and his actions. So they set themselves against him to destroy him. The thoughts and attitudes of these leading groups are completely in line with the devil. And with his minions, not the little yellow guys that dance around, you know. But well, this ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, consisted of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were bitterly divided over spiritual things. Paul took advantage of this rivalry when he was arrested at the temple in Jerusalem, and he was rescued by the Roman commander. The crowd was about to kill him and subsequently taken before the council to stand trial for his supposed crimes. In Acts chapter 23, where Paul is before the council, it says in verse 6, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So, he sees an opportunity here to divide the council because they're united against Paul. All of a sudden, 
He's making the resurrection from the dead the issue. And they began to quarrel among themselves. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, although they just had previously. (laughs) But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing Paul, lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And this was what Paul was longing for. So this word from Jesus was really a blessing to him. So these Sadducees present to Jesus an extreme illustration of how the law concerning, uh, of the law concerning leveret marriage, as the arrangement came to be called, doesn't have anything to do with Levi, the tribe of Levi. Uh, but Moses states this law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, where it says, "If, blo- if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside." The family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And then the elders of this, his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. This was a great shame. Uh, for your house to be spoken of this way, in this way, and and we'll see this uh, later on in, in the history of Israel, in, in the case of Ruth, in that situation. But there wasn't any spitting involved in, you know, the original. There was spitting involved, and in, you know, Jesus spit and did miracles, you know, from spitting. So, uh, but it, the sandal is still removed because that's. Like the main thing. So this uh, arrangement was a social construct mainly for the continuance of the lineage of the deceased, including property and inheritance rights. Land was to be a permanent family possession. If the wife married outside the family, then all of a sudden the land moves from the family to a different family. Uh, And Israel didn't keep this continually anyway. But uh, So it, this was in order to preserve the family name and to keep the property in the family. It's a strange-sounding um, arrangement, perhaps even bizarre to our modern and Christian ears. We, we may question whether God would really say something like this, but He did. 
it is difficult for us to comprehend this in our day, and we will have to wait until, well, the resurrection to have a full understanding of this from God's mind. But if we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, then we accept it and we wait upon God and trust God's wisdom above our own. It's very diff- it was very difficult for a widow to survive on her own in those times. It's difficult now. But it was magnitudes more difficult then. It's, I mean, it's just as difficult in some areas of the world now as it was then. This provision of Leverite marriage provided some support for the childless widow, as well as continuing these family rights. God has never commanded polygamy. It always resulted in problems within the family. But this provision could result in such a marriage if a man is already married. God's plan is clearly one man and one woman. Uh, Perhaps this provision is partly a result of God's mercy and compassion upon the destitute. In any case, it is part of the covenant of God with the Jewish nation, and it's not applicable today. The rule is illustrated for us quite plainly in the book of Ruth, and it provides for us a picture of the kinsman redeemer, or Gaol. A short book, and an easy one to read for later. You can sit down and read it in a very short amount of time, and and we'll look at parts of it, but it'd be good for you to get the whole picture. There's famine in the land of Israel. And Naomi, her name means pleasant or my delight, and her husband Elimelech, which means my God is king, and their two sons, Malon, which means sick, and Chilion, which means pining, moved to the land of Moab. So they were, they were weak, and here's the famine, you know. They're, so they, they hear that there's a grain in Moab, and they go over to Moab to, so they have something to eat. Now, they're from Bethlehem. And Elimelech dies. And then about ten years later, both sons die, leaving widows behind. The widows are Orpah, which means gazelle, and Ruth, which means friend or friendship. Not many women named Orpah today, but many are named Ruth. The famine ends in Israel, and Naomi hears this, and so she returns. And at first, the two widows seek to follow her. They're both Moabite women. They're not Israelites. And she discourages them. We read in Ruth 1, verses 14 through 18, she's discouraged them from going with her and said, Go back to your people and worship your gods. And it says in verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So he gets different decisions from these two widows. And Naomi says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. So she had this love and concern for her mother-in-law such that she was not going to take no for an answer. She was going to go with Naomi wherever she was going to go. And she becomes a worshiper of the God of Israel. And when she saw that, when Naomi, Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. 
I'm sure she still spoke to her, but she stopped talking to her about that. <laughs> I'm not speaking to this Moabite woman. Well, when they returned, some people recognized Naomi, and she says, don't call me Naomi, but Mara, which uh, instead of pleasant means bitter or bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She's lost her husband or two sons. Well, they arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, so there's food. Another provision in the law allowed for the poor to follow the harvesters in the field and glean that which fell to the ground. Also, the corners of the fields were, were not to be harvested again for the benefit of the poor of the land. We read this in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. There were probably some people that made circular fields so they wouldn't have any corners, you know. And you should, you know, there were different people's attitudes, the same as there are today. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Uh, again, in Deuteronomy 24, we get a, a little fuller explanation. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Again, there were probably people that went over their fields ten times to make sure they did not leave a sheaf accidentally in the field. And then there were probably those who left a sheaf accidentally on purpose. <laughs> and when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. You know what it means to suffer. And so, have mercy, pity upon these. Well, Elimelech has a wealthy relative by the name of Boaz. I'm not sure of the meaning of his name. It's possibly fleetness. It doesn't seem that fleet in the story. He responds quickly to the plight of Ruth and Naomi, although he does respond quickly. Maybe. So he responds quickly to the plight of Ruth and Naomi and he watches over Ruth in the field and tells the reapers to let some grain fall to the ground on purpose for her to pick up and to let her glean among the sheaves themselves. So Ruth comes home with a lot more grain than she should have been able to collect. And Naomi finds that she was in the field of Boaz and she tells Ruth that he is a near kinsman or the Hebrew word ka'al which is a kinsman redeemer. The, the word means to redeem, to act as a kinsman redeemer, to ransom, to do the part of a kinsman. So Boaz is a potential kinsman redeemer for Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Boaz decides he will take Ruth, the Moabitess, who is now committed to the God of Israel as his wife, and sets about the process of redemption when he finds out the situation. There was a law of redemption for property and for people. If they were sold uh, to someone else, then you could redeem it if you had the property rights, if you were a kinsman, a near kinsman. The nearest kinsman always had the first right of refusal, and then you could go down the line. Uh, and so it could be redeemed, or in the year of Jubilee, it would revert to the family automatically, or in the case of a person every seventh year. 
So this right of redemption falls to the nearest relative, uh, a different man than Boaz. There's a different man who who's a closer relative. And this other man has the first right of refusal. But when he hears that he must take Ruth as his wife, he refuses the redemption. This is in Ruth chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. The close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. In other words, I can't do this because I'm married and it would not, you know, I would I would not survive, basically. <laughs> now, this was the custom in former times in Israel, it tells us, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. No spitting. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and, you know, limped home. Well, this is a beautiful picture from a historical event of Jesus as the kinsman redeemer of mankind. Mankind could not be redeemed by anyone other than a real human being. This is the virgin conception so that he did not have his own sin for which he must answer. He could answer for our sin. And being the infinite God made flesh, his payment has infinite value. Not just to redeem one, but to pay the price for all to be redeemed. And he paid the price for our redemption on the cross, dying in our place, so that he might redeem a bride for himself from among mankind, just as Boaz did. Uh, that is, those who believe and accept redemption become the purchased bride. In this, we see marriage as portraying the relationship between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, after Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives, he says in verse 31, quoting Genesis 2, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is what marriage is really about. So in Ruth chapter 4, then verses 13 through 17, this is the result of their marriage. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Excuse me. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. Blessed, blessed are we because the Lord has not left us this day without a close relative. And his name is famous in Israel and without. And may you be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, so your daughter-in-law who loves, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, who has borne you this child. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. And also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, "This is a son born to Naomi," and they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Obed means serving. His birth served purposes. Jesse, I possess. And David, beloved. And so we have Moab, this Moabitess woman. She's in the lineage of the Messiah. The lineage of David. So, the Sadducees tell Jesus this ridiculous tale that they think by its absurdity disproves any concept of the resurrection. These seven brothers all had the same woman as wife. And 
Um, one of the commentators I was listening to said, uh, if I was fourth or fifth in line, she never would have got me. <laughs> because, wait a second, you got my four brothers here. <laughs> You're not getting me. Something fishy going on here. You know. But I can imagine it as a PBS special. It'd be called One Bride for Seven Brothers. Anyway, in this tale, the Sadducees assume certain things about the resurrection that are not taught in Scripture. They assume that life in the resurrection will be the same as it is here and now, only, well, resurrected. Not so. But we have not been given that much information about the resurrected life to this point, about what relationships will be like, details about family and the like. We've been given many important truths that make us definitely want to be included in the resurrection to life. We are told that there are two possibilities, one a resurrection to everlasting life and the other a resurrection to everlasting contempt. As Daniel states it, verses 1 and 2, Daniel says in chapter 12 of Daniel, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. We're talking tribulation period. Even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there are these two possible destinations in resurrection. Uh, We are told that all will be resurrected to one or the other state. There will be no exceptions. So it's vital to ensure that we are included in the first resurrection, which is the resurrection to life. This resurrection to life will be to life as we have never known it. No pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no tears. Perfect health, true wealth, sharing in the life of Jesus and his inheritance, which we have a glimpse of now if we've come to believe in him. The glory of God and the knowledge of God covering all of creation as the waters cover the sea. We're told in Isaiah 11.9 and Habakkuk 2.14. There will be no more struggling with temptation or sin. In Revelation 21 and verse 5, uh, we're told, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is when he's creating the new heavens and the new earth. It's Isaiah 65, 17. Uh, Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, in the Spirit of the Lord, says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So all these sorrows, the things that the tears were shed for, we will not remember. Uh, regarding the, their imaginary scenario, Jesus asked the Sadducees, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Well, that's kind of rude. Here are these totally sincere fellows come with a totally honest question. And Jesus answers them thus. Of course, they are trying once again to trap him with an unanswerable question. And he knows it. Their motives are not pure. And they do not even try to pretend so. They don't try to butter him up like the Pharisees did before. But he gives them a truthful, if blunt, answer that provides them with the opportunity to turn around and follow him. I see four basic views of the idea of resurrection. First is there is no resurrection. 
When you're dead, you're dead. There's no afterlife. No continuance of existence. You cease to exist when your body ceases to function. You are as dead as the proverbial doornail. Thus, there is no meaning to existence, no consequence to living a good or an evil life. The only thing that matters is the here and now. So if you have to step on others to get to the top, it's better than being the one stepped on. Not to say that there are not some who believe this view of the resurrection who seek to treat others well, but it's inconsistent with the worldview. There were some books released in the 70s that always come back to mind when I'm thinking about this. One was titled Looking Out for Number One. How to get, this is a subtitle, How to Get Where You Are, How to Get From Where You Are to Where You Want to Be in Life. This book spent one year on the New York Times bestseller list. It was at number one for quite a while. And then the author wrote a companion volume. He actually wrote three books, but this uh, second one. I don't know the order exactly, but this one was titled Winning Through Intimidation. How to be the victor, not the victim in business and in life. Well, this is the view of the atheist, the Darwinist, but I repeat myself, uh, Survival of the Fittest. Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. There's your basis of racism. This is held to by the atheist, the Darwinist, the Sadducee. There are some Sadducees today, and some of them are in churches today. Uh, they don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they don't believe in a resurrection. It's just this moral, uh, you know, trying to be good kind of thing. And to them, it doesn't matter if Jesus was raised from the dead or not. It does matter. If Jesus is not alive, there is no Christianity. When the body dies, you cease to have any existence? Not so. There is an afterlife, this is the second view, and whether it is spiritual only or if there is a resurrection of the body, all will be resurrected into a good state. This is what others believe. That is universalism. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Mengele, any and every monstrous human being will be the recipient of good. This is sometimes stated as all roads lead to God. All religions, or no religion actually, is just as valid, are seen as equally valid and the assertion is made that they, are all, they all basically teach the same truths and lead to the same destination. This is absurd by merely a cursory overview of the major religion's teachings. And there's a third view. You may think of some other view that I haven't thought of, but this is mine. There's a cycle of resurrection, or more precisely, reincarnation, in which the soul is born to a, into a body, animal or human, and lives a life in this world over and over until perfection is achieved, and the soul is once again absorbed into the universal life force, or the God Word, or the Star Wars force. That is, an impersonal God who resembles the biblical personal true God, in no way. This God's power can be used for good or for evil. You and everyone else are God. 
and you need to realize it and get back to your true state. Thus we have Shirley MacLaine running on the beach and shouting, I am God, over and over. And it was out on a limb. That's a good title for the book and the movie. Now, there are minor variances or details within these views that are held by different proponents. So if my summary explanation doesn't fit some view exactly, uh, these are still the overall or flyover views that I see. Each of these views, uh, God's word denies, and each of these views denies God's word. The fourth and biblical view is that there is a resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. All people continue to exist after death apart from the body, and all will stand before either the judgment seat of Christ, which pertains to salvation, and only the saved will appear there. It's the mercy seat, the propitiation seat. Or they will appear before the great white throne judgment, and this pertains to condemnation. This is for those who are not believers and are not born again. Revelation 20:11 through 15 says, I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus said this in John 5, verses 24 through 29. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of God, of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And so this he's saying the, the hour now is Jesus Raised people from the dead. And this is leading up to the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 26, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Just as he can be our Redeemer because he is the Son of Man, he can judge because he is the Son of Man. He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus affirms that there uh, are two destinations. He affirms the resurrection of the dead uh, from the dead of the body. And it is affirmed throughout the Old and New Testaments. Jesus tells the Sadducees that they are mistaken because they do not know the Scriptures. To present an argument against the resurrection, one must be ignorant of or ignore the plain statements of the Scriptures. Universalism is refuted by the, res- by the Scriptures as well. There is a resurrection to life, a resurrection to condemnation, spoken of as the second death. The statement that all roads lead to God is not true, although I did hear Dave Hunt agree with this statement on one occasion. He said, basically, yes, all roads do lead to God. It's where you go after that that matters. (laughs) 
In other words, all will stand before God in judgment and that there are two and only two possible outcomes. There's only one way that leads to life and Jesus is that way as he told us in John 14:6. No man comes to the Father but through me. All other roads end in the second death, an eternal state, existence in the lake of fire. Now there are some within evangelicalism today, whatever that word might still mean, who teach that the resurrection to condemnation is not eternal. Instead, after an appropriate period of punishment, for example, Hitler will be punished worse than Aunt Sally who did not believe. And there are there are indications in Scripture there will be differences in levels of punishment, but not temporarily. So after this appropriate period of punishment, whatever it might be, the soul is destroyed and ceases to exist. I don't think the language of Scripture allows us to take that view. But it has become popular in some circles. There are various arguments set forth in support of it. But I think there's a danger in this teaching's power to make people more comfortable in their unbelief. And if untrue, if this belief is untrue, then it's truly a tragic consequence because they will spend eternity separated from God in torment. Finally, reincarnation is foreign in every way to scriptural truth. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed to a man once to die, after that to judgment. There is no cycle of reincarnated lives. There is no wheel of life, as it's called. There's a new original, one of the streaming services called the Wheel of Time which is basically Eastern mysticism restated in a fantasy world. And, you know, you got people that are going to be reincarnated. Or, you know, people are not gods. This is the original temptation that was presented to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, in verse 1, as the serpent comes to her, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Hath God indeed said, You shall not eat? of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And this contradicts God's word. He says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And they became fallen. The second thing the Sadducees did not know, according to Jesus, was the power of God. Because they they did not believe the Scriptures, They did not believe in the supernatural abilities of God to intervene in creation in any way that he desires. His power is unlimited, and thus it is no more difficult for him to raise from the dead than it was for him to create all things in the beginning. If there is a creator, there's nothing beyond his power. As Jesus told us in Mark 10.27 a while back, with God all things are possible. You know, and... um, one of Paul's letters to Timothy, he talks about those perilous times that are going to be in the last days. And he says there will be some who will have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And he says stay away from them. <laughs> and that's what this is, not knowing the power of God, having this form of godliness but denying the power. 
But when we believe God's word, then we understand that he will do whatever he has said he will do and more beyond, no matter how impossible it seems to the minds of men. History and experience are not factors in the possibility. As Paul asked at his hearing before Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 6, he says to Agrippa, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And he's talking about the resurrection again, because that's what he's been preaching to Agrippa. Basically the same thing he told the council in Jerusalem. And he says, To this promise our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? That God raises the dead. We can think it incredible, and we should think it incredible, that others might raise the dead, but not God. So Jesus corrects their understanding after telling them that they're greatly mistaken. Uh, And Jesus' answer to the Sadducees provides us with more information about uh, personal lives or issues in the resurrection than we have anywhere else. There will be no marriage in heaven. Family relationships will not continue in the same way as on earth. We have every reason to believe that we'll know each other in heaven and no reason to believe that we won't. But those earthly relationships will not carry on in the same way. This idea is very upsetting to some. As there is a great, there is great value and security in the relationships that many experience now. There's one cult whose basic foundation is built on the fact that, you know, they'll have same husbands and wives and children in heaven, and you make your own planet and populate it and so forth. Found Salt Lake City. But there are many who also suffer often in family relationships and sometimes daily from family members and they're going to be glad this family relationship is over. In any case, this will not be an issue for any who are raised to newness of life. All things will be new and all things will be vastly better, undoubtedly beyond measuring. The last part of verse 25 is misunderstood by some where Jesus says they're like angels in heaven. It's misunderstood by some to teach that resurrected humans will become angels in heaven. This is not the case. Men are not angels and angels are not men and never shall be. In Luke chapter 20, this same passage, verses 35-36, he says, Those who are counted worthy to attain that age, Jesus speaking, And the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. They're going to be equal to the angels in the sense that they're not going to die. They're going to have uh, eternal life again. Um, The only comparison Jesus is making is to the marriage relationship. Angels don't marry. They're not given in marriage. Uh, resurrected human beings will not marry and they will not be given in marriage. Um, Those who are part of the church are in a new relationship as the bride of Christ. There is no indication in Scripture that human beings will have wings in the resurrection as is also assumed from the comparison to angels. Resurrected people will have bodies like unto Jesus' glorious body now, Philippians 3.21, he's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. 
in 1 John 3, 2, says it's not yet revealed what we shall be. Now we are the children of God, but we know that when He's revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So our body's going to be like the resurrected body we see of Jesus in the Scriptures. And no representation in Scripture presents Jesus with wings, although He certainly can travel and navigate apart from any of the natural limitations of creation. And that's that'll be our state. So you can ring all the bells you want, no wings. And it's still a wonderful life, knowing Jesus. So Jesus finishes his argument with Scripture. He cites Exodus 3.6, part of the book of Moses. He quotes the book of Moses because one thing about the Sadducees is that they only saw as authoritative the five books of Moses. And they didn't really see those authoritative because it's full of angels and and supernatural stuff going on which they didn't believe in. But in Exodus 3.6, God speaking to Moses says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is at the burning bush. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Uh, Jesus affirms the authorship of Moses of these books here as well. He uses this passage partly because the Sadducees accepted only these first five books of Moses, uh, although their understanding of these also was deficient. None of these men that he spoke about, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, were living in the flesh any longer by the time God spoke to Moses. Jesus bases his response to the question on the tense of the verb in this statement from God to Moses. This is the extent of the view of Jesus as to the reliability of Scripture. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But I am, present tense. Although at the time of Moses, these men's bodies had been dead for hundreds of years, they still existed. They still lived to God. They had not ceased to exist. These men were alive, although they had departed from their bodies. We see this in the Christian context in 2 Corinthians 5 where he talks about absent from the body, present with the Lord. Um, Absent from the Lord is present in the body. At times, men are spoken of as being gathered to their fathers. They use this expression when someone would die. This indicated not just the body being buried where their ancestors are buried. could include that. But as believers or unbelievers, they go to the place where their respective fathers are uh, in existence, not non-existing. And then Jesus concludes with the Sadducees by saying in verse 27, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So, he makes the point to them twice. You're mistaken. This gives them an opportunity to repent, to turn around. And we do know that there were priests who were saved you know, early in the book of Acts, in chapter 6 or so. It says many of the priests came to believe, and many of those priests would have been Sadducees. And so they did come to believe in the resurrection and so forth. Now, later on in the church, you'll find people like in 1 Corinthians 15, some people teaching that there's no resurrection. And that chapter was written to refute. Uh, so maybe some Sadducees came along and you know, were in those churches trying to 
present that type of a doctrine. Now, wherever it came from, that was being taught by some within those. The Sadducees, they perished after the temple was destroyed. And some people say they lasted until about 73 A.D. You got, you got no temple, you got no function for the priesthood. And so the Sadducees perished as a group. You know, the people lived on, reproduced, and so forth. Uh, they believe that Sadducees' sect began around the time of the uh, Maccabean Revolt. I mean, a little bit before that, maybe 173 B.C. or somewhere in there. Um, so, they're, you know, this is, they're on the scene here in the days of Jesus. But it wasn't, you know, the Pharisees, they're, they're still around. They don't call themselves anymore, but it's the ultra-Orthodox. You know, that's pretty much where the, the Pharisees' worldview was. So. so Jesus tells them, you're greatly mistaken. In Luke again, 20, uh, verse 38, he says, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. 